Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning comes from 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 22, which can be found on page 230 in your pew Bibles or on the screens behind me. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is God's word. you have uh, your Bibles, I hope you'll keep them open to 1 Samuel. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. God, you are so good to us. And as we have been reminded this morning in the lyrics of the songs that we have sung to you, you are faithful to us. God, as we open the scripture this morning, as we open the book of 1 Samuel together this morning, we pray that you would remind us anew that you are faithful, that you are the king that we need. We're thankful for you, for your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. This morning we are launching a short series in the book of 1 Samuel that will carry us through the next month or so here at Westgate. Uh, It's actually, I should say, through the book of Samuel, because um, actually the biblical books of 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one long unified book, 
but they were apparently divided up because ancient scribes could only fit so much writing on a standard length scroll. So I am excited this morning to launch a series studying through the book of Samuel together. Those specifically this morning, we're looking at a passage in 1 Samuel. There are parts of this book that are certainly more familiar to us, like the story of David facing off against Goliath. But the book as a whole, I think, can often be overlooked. There are a lot of battles, lots of names, lots of historical data that can make it seem kind of intimidating. But it has a lot to offer us, and I think it is just what we need right now because it is a crucial reminder of some of the foundations of our faith. As some of you know, Jessica and I got to take a trip to Europe last summer. After saving airline miles for six years, we were able to take a trip that we had been planning since before we got married. And one of the places that we visited was a coastal city in Croatia called Dubrovnik. And for those of you who don't know anything about Dubrovnik, it's famous because of its city walls, which were built as a defense against enemy attack in the 13th and 14th centuries. And for the 40,000 people who currently call Dubrovnik home, uh, they live within a fortress of a city surrounded on all sides by impressive walls. And when I say impressive, I really mean it. The walls in this city are over 20 feet thick and in places over 80 feet high. They were designed to withstand the direct and continuous cannon fire of an army attacking the city. And as we walked around on top of them, it was difficult for me to imagine any ancient army possibly being able to breach those walls. And as I consider what 13th century firepower was probably like, the walls surrounding the city of Dubrovnik seemed like a little bit of overkill. Because throughout medieval history, no one got even close to attacking and conquering that city. They were built to such a scale, though, because of something that all people, all of us, throughout all of history have in common. We are concerned for our security. We obsess over it, and we do everything we can to prevent the loss of everything that we hold dear. We fear what it would be like if those things were stripped away from us. I do the same thing in my life. Just after Jessica and I were married, we were at home one evening, and the doorbell rang. And uh, there were a couple of guys outside who wanted to talk to us about home security systems. They told us all about the terrible crime spree that had been sweeping through our neighborhood in order to motivate us to make a purchase. And as we look back now, we think maybe they were embellishing a little bit, inflating some of the facts and figures in order to make a sale. But Their sales pitch had the intended effect, and by the end of our conversation with them, we were convinced that if we didn't have a home security system, it was only a matter of time before ISIS and the reanimated remains of Genghis Khan kicked in our front door with nefarious intent. And at the end of the night, we bought a security system. (laughs) Because it's easy for our uncertainty to give way to fear, and in fear, We give in to the door-to-door sales pitch for an alarm system. We make rash decisions in fear. As we look at the situation unfolding in 1 Samuel this morning, we see some of those same dynamics at play. The people of Israel have been through generations of difficulty and trial for centuries. After taking up residence in the land that God had promised to give his people, a routine is, is established. The people, God's people, would commit some terrible apostasy, turning away from their faithfulness and relationship to God toward idols. 
And so God would afflict them, typically with the invasion of a foreign army. In their idolatry, God's hand was against them, just as he had warned them that it would be. And so in the midst of that affliction, they would repent of their sin and turn back toward the Lord in repentance and dependence. And so God would remove, he would remove that affliction from them. But before long, they would turn toward idols again, and the cycle would repeat. That cycle takes place over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And as we read in the opening of that book, in chapter 2, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet, they did not listen to their judges, for they pursued other gods who bowed down and bowed down to them. For centuries, the people were constantly oscillating between obedience uh, to God and to the covenant that they had with him and receiving God's favor in that obedience uh, to idolatry and the oppression and affliction of foreign attackers. attackers. And Samuel, for whom our uh, book, the book that we're studying, is named, is the last of the judges that God raised up to lead his people in this season of their life as a nation. And at, as we open our passage this morning, the opening verse tells us that he is getting old. So he appoints his sons to carry some of the responsibility of being the judge over Israel. Seems like a good plan, but they are corrupt. They took bribes and they used their authority for personal gain. And from their position as judges and leaders in Israel, they use violence to fill their wallets. We know that because the word used for gain in verse 3 is almost always used in Scripture to describe the overt use of violence for personal profit. Like in Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers ask, what will it profit us or what gain will it be to us to kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us instead sell him into slavery. Samuel's sons are truly wicked in their leadership. They are sinning against the people that they've been appointed by their father to protect. And it's in the midst of this circumstance that the people of Israel come together with a plan. They don't like how things have been going as they look back on their history as a people, and they don't like the look of where things are headed under the leadership of Samuel's corrupt sons. They know that Samuel is old and he won't be around forever to faithfully lead them, and they fear how his sons would terrorize them without Samuel around to keep them in check. And so in verse 4 of our passage this morning, the people gather together in Samuel's hometown and tell him to appoint for them a king to judge them like all the nations. Their memory of the past and their uncertainty about the future has given way to fear. And in fear, they looked to their neighboring countries for an example to follow. All of their neighbors, all of the nations that surround them have kings with armies and fortresses, the very picture of strength that they are longing for. We should note this morning that it's not sinful for them to ask for a king in the first place. God had promised a long time ago, way back in Genesis, that kings would come from the lineage of Abraham. And in Deuteronomy, God gives his people specific instructions for the type of king, the character of the king that they should seek for themselves. So God isn't opposed to the idea of kings. Their request to have a king appointed by their godly judge is not in itself an abandonment of God's designs or intent for them as a people. But 
Their demand reveals things about the nature of their relationship with God, about their fears, and about how they sought to address those fears that are ultimately problematic. So when the people approach Samuel, when he hears their request, their demand for a king, he is distressed, and the thing that they have asked him displeases him. We read in verse 6. He's distressed by what they ask. Because, for starters, Israel's request for a king represents their desire for a security they felt that they did not have. They looked at their neighbors and they saw what looked like stability and security. And having a king like her neighbors would make Israel strong, they reasoned. Having a king would mean having a standing army, trained and capable soldiers always at the ready to defend them. It would mean that they would never again be caught by surprise when a foreign army invaded them. They would be ready and capable of defending themselves. That's a desire, I think, that we can associate with. We can understand what they were going for here, what they were hoping for, and what they think they can do to achieve it. We can understand why they think that having a king is a good strategy. We make strategies all the time and plans to prevent losing the things that, might, uh, that, that we hold most dear and to prevent the catastrophes that, right, that might rob us of those things. Most of the time, I don't think we're, we're thinking, we're not thinking of invading armies most of the time, though there are definitely some people out there with bunkers in their backyard and piles of like canned corn that are thinking of exactly that. For the rest of us, though, we're not thinking about invading armies. We're, pl- we're, we're planning and strategizing with things like retirement accounts, with insurance plans, with goals of getting into the best colleges in order to get the very best job afterward, of having the best relationship, or of buying that security system for the house. We understand what Israel wanted, and we also understand their attempt to devise a strategy to get it or to keep it. Secondly, Israel's request for a king represents their desire for predictability that they felt they did not have. For generations, they had been ruled by judges that God had raised up for them at the specific time that they were in need for that leadership. But there was no way for them to understand or anticipate how God would provide for them or what that provision might look like. In the midst of their affliction, as they cried out to God, they were left to wonder who in the world God might appoint to save them. That's a feeling I feel like we can also understand. None of us no one likes feeling helpless, like we aren't in control. We all endure situations in life in which we feel like we are more along for the ride than the one steering the car. When we get a devastating diagnosis from our doctor, or when we open a rejection letter, or encounter conflict in our workplace, or feel the sting of a betrayal, The moments in life when we are left with more questions than answers about what is next. No one likes that feeling. No one likes feeling helpless or being helpless. And so we understand Israel's desire for predictability. They had actually already sought it. Back in the book of Judges, when they approached Gideon, one of Israel's most famous judges, and they say to him, after he has delivered them from an oppressing army, they say, rule over us, Gideon, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. 
They wanted to know, and they wanted to be able to look forward and know that there was someone leading and protecting them. Gideon had done well, he had fought well, he had delivered them miraculously, and they trusted that he and his sons and grandsons would also continue in that faithful rescue. They tried to make him their king, but Gideon replies to them, I will not rule over you, and my son shall not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood that to receive this authority was to attempt seizing it from God. He knew, he trusted, that God's reign was predictable and trustworthy. Thirdly, Israel's request for king represents a desire for understanding that they felt they did not have. They had seen God protect them and provide for them, but they did not understand him. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 4, the people of God encountered their old rivals, the Philistines, in battle. And when the smoke cleared at the end of that battle, Israel had lost. Not only had they lost, but they had also lost around 4,000 of their soldiers. So the people, confused by what's happened, asked themselves, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They don't understand what's gone wrong. So they devise a strategy that they consider absolutely bulletproof. They go back home, they collect themselves, and they get the Ark of the Covenant to bring with them to their next battle. The Ark was Israel's most treasured possessions. It contained reminders of God's covenant relationship with them. It was the tangible sign of God's relationship with them as a people. And in its place in the temple, the Ark was the literal place of God's meeting with his people. It's an incredibly significant object, but Israel saw it as kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot, a way for them to channel God's power in the way that they wanted it to work. And as soon as it arrives at the battle, all of Israel, we read, gave a mighty shout. The whole country is pumped because God is going to vindicate them. And on the other side of the battle, when the Philistines hear that the ark has arrived in the Philistine camp, they tremble with fear. They are afraid because they thought that a God had come to fight alongside their enemies. They say literally, woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague. They fear that they're going to absolutely be annihilated because Israel has brought the ark with them to battle. But one verse later, the battle is over and Israel has been absolutely pummeled, losing over 30,000 men in the defeat. And on top of it all, the Philistines make a, way, make a getaway with the ark itself. Israel doesn't understand the God that they've been called into relationship with. They don't understand his provision they don't understand his commitment to his covenant with them, and they figure that they should have a leader whom they can at least comprehend, a leader they can see. They want a leader whom they can see riding a horse into battle on their behalf, as they say at the end of our passage this morning. Even if they felt that they comprehended God before, their defeat at the hands of the Philistines with the ark in their possession has proven to them that they know nothing. And we can understand that feeling too. 
We can easily feel like God has left us to toil and struggle when our prayers are not answered in the way that we wanted, when we are surprised by some new trial that we hadn't prepared for. It can be easy for our questions to overwhelm our confidence in God's love for us. And when we're faced with situations like those, it can be easy for our uncertainty to become fear. So the people demand a king who will ease those fears, who will allow them to have the protection and the predictability, the understanding that they believe they do not already have. The situation unfolding in 1 Samuel reveals something important. In his prayers on behalf of the people when Samuel is disappointed in them, God comments in verse 7 that they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. The people, these people, already had a king, and one better than the human king that they will soon have. God has already promised to his people that he would be their God and they would be his people. But they have neglected that promise. He has demonstrated his love for them and the power that protected them. In his covenant with them, he had promised them his affection and expected their faithfulness in return. But he had also promised his judgment for their idolatry. They know this, which is why they asked, Back in chapter 4, after they lost to the Philistines, they ask, why has the Lord defeated us? Because God has been nothing if not consistent and predictable. And in giving them the law, he made his expectations for their character clear. But in the confusion of their circumstance, with the uncertainty of their future under Samuel's son's leadership, They neglect the ways that God has already demonstrated himself to be a better king than any they might ask for. They have rejected him and despised his rule. They have abandoned their calling, their holy calling, which God gave to them in Exodus when he told them that they were, as a nation, his treasured possession from among all peoples, because all the earth is his. He says to them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation set apart. They were supposed to be distinct and holy among all the nations of the world, leading all people into a faithful relationship with God, but they have instead looked to those nations as the model for them to follow. Yet, God instructs Samuel to grant this request, but to do so with a lengthy warning first. Samuel's words in verses 10 through 18 sound to me, a little bit like the end of a commercial for prescription medicine. Side effects of having a king like the nations include conscription into the army, taxation, seizure of property, enslavement, risk of sudden death, and restless leg syndrome. Samuel doesn't pull any punches when he warns them about these things. He doesn't say, this might go sideways on you. This might not turn out the way you think. He says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And the word for ways in verse 11, at the opening of Samuel's address to them, his warning to them, is the same as the Hebrew word for justice. And as we read that passage, you can practically see him using air quotes. This will be the justice that you'll receive from the king you choose. It will not be the king you dream of. He will be worse than the fears that drove you to seek him in the first place. 
that he will cause you to cry out to the Lord as you have for generations from the depth of your affliction, but this time the Lord will not answer you. The affliction that they face now under the king that they will choose for themselves is not like before. It will not be the judgment of God brought in order to stir repentance of these people. Instead, he says in verse 18, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. They will cry out because they are afflicted, not by God, but by the king that they have chosen for themselves. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel. And at the end of our passage, they double down on their desire to be like the nations and to have a king to protect them. Their fearful demand for a king reminds me of one of Jesus' parables in Luke 12. In the parable, Jesus describes a rich man who has an abundance of grain from his farm. And fearing its loss, he tore down his barns in order to build bigger barns to store the harvest. He strategically plans for his future, ensuring in his mind the security that he desires for himself. And after successfully implementing his strategy, he says to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Therefore, relax, rest, drink, and be merry. But the parable ends with the man dying that very night. All the plans that he had made, all the strategy that he had designed to ensure his livelihood for years to come could not prevent his death. He had put his deepest trust in something which could not truly protect him. And after telling this parable, Jesus gives his listeners an alternative. He counsels them against anxiety and toward trust in God's provision. He tells them to look at the ravens who do not store up provisions in barns, yet they are provided for. He tells them to consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet they are more richly dressed than King Solomon in all of his glory. The nations, he says, seek after these things, but God knows that you need them. He isn't saying that they don't matter or that we don't need for things. But if we stop obsessing over them and having more and better things, we, to quote a famous missionary, give up what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. Jesus ends by saying, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. It's in light of that realization, the internalization of that truth, and the security that it provides that God's people are able to be different from the nations, to obey his command and to live simply, to give to the needy and to trust in God's provision. The people of ancient Israel were instead forsaking the king who had given them everything in order to choose a king for themselves who would take everything from them. It is a foolish decision and one that we shake our heads at, as we often do with ancient Israel. We read about ancient Israel in the Old Testament and we often think, what were they thinking? But it's, this is a mistake that we can understand because we can easily make it ourselves. This is a consistent theme in all of Scripture. The temptation to put our deepest trust in things other than what can truly provide security. Ancient Israel again and again and again failed to trust God as their protector and provider, even though he had proven himself again and again and again. 
Jesus admonishes his followers to trust in God's provision, to not be anxious about the things of this world, because we have already been given a prize that makes them pale by comparison. It is the opposite of everything that Samuel warns these people about. The king we have is the opposite of the king that Samuel describes to these people. He tells them that the king they choose for themselves will take from them. He will rule without mercy. He will enslave and take the best of the nation for himself. He will be served by the people of the nation he rules as a tyrant. He will be a king just as the nations have. But Christ is the king unlike any nation has. He gives of himself and he rules with justice and mercy. In humility, he takes the form of a servant. Though he is the king, he came to live among his people, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not ride his horse into a battle like the king that Israel hoped for. Instead, he obediently rode toward his own arrest and abuse. In Christ, we have a king whose crown was made of thorns and whose coronation was on a cross. He went there on behalf of his people to give them life, to give them something they could get nowhere else. He is not a king like the nations, but he is the king we need. Rather than putting our hope for safety and a future in the things that we build and the strategies that we employ, we have a God who is a proven security and a trustworthy provider. What we need most is not a bigger barn or a surefire safety net, but the daily reminder that God has already given us his kingdom. This passage drives us, I think, to ask important questions, one of which is, what brings me comfort in the midst of uncertainty or trouble? What is the foundation of your peace, and is it truly worthy of your deepest trust? Am I comforted most by my income level, by my retirement plan, by my relationships or my health? Am I comforted most by the doomsday shelter I have in my backyard? Do I think that that will provide for me when I am in need? Are those the things that I depend on at a foundational level to provide for my future? When Jessica and I moved to Massachusetts three years ago, it was so evident to us that God had prepared a way for us, going before us to provide for us the things that we hadn't even thought to ask for yet. We had a lot of plans for how this was going to work, but God's ideas were different. He provided us both with jobs that we didn't ask for, but that we both love. We had agonized, spent months, literally, Jessica spent two years before we moved here doing research, trying to figure out where in the world we could afford to live. <laughs> and we were resigning ourselves to live a long way from the church in a shed. But God dropped an apartment literally in our laps, in a, in a place that we hadn't even thought to look, from people whom we hadn't, didn't even know yet. It's close to the church, and it's big enough for us to have students over for Bible study. It is better than we had dared ask for. He provided for the financial burden of going to seminary. And as we look back at our lives, we can see the evident hand of God in the way that he has shown us mercy in providing for us this way. He reminds us every day 
of the eternal provision that we have in Christ through these glimpses of his mercy. He has never not been faithful to us. So why in the world, as we look toward the future, would we seek comfort anywhere other than the will of God, even if it looks different from what I might plan for myself? Why would I willingly give my deepest trust to anything that might let me down or disappoint me when I have a proven security in Christ? I believe that for Westgate as a whole, this is a timely reminder. As we wade into a season of uncertainty, we wonder what will be next for us. Pastoral leadership can be a turbulent season in the life of any church, and we certainly lament the fact that Pastor Brandon will be moving on soon. What lies before us is the dark helplessness of uncertainty, wondering what lies ahead. I feel this certainty in my own heart as I think about what's next for me. Many of you already know about the questionable decision that your elders made recently when they asked me to step into a greater level of responsibility here at Westgate, <laughs> including more opportunities to be in the pulpit. I think that their strategy is simple. Make sure that the next pastor looks good. <laughs> no matter who we find to be our next lead pastor, let's make sure that he looks good by comparison. It's a solid plan. And even though I am excited about this season, I am nervous. <laughs> but as I look backward at how God has already provided for me, at how he has already given me everything to make me his son, why should I doubt for a second that he won't continue to be the king that I need? Why should I fear what lies ahead when what's behind has proven God's faithfulness to me? As we as a church move forward with a pastoral search, we will be tempted to put our trust, our deepest trust, in the pastor of our imagination. The pastor whose winsome preaching fills the pews with newcomers and whose charming personality makes everyone feel at home here at Westgate, whose strategy for outreach will be something none of the rest of us have ever thought of and it will revitalize ministry in all of New England. We will be tempted to put our trust in his strengths and to look for someone who has it all together, who is handsome and has a big beard. <laughs> and hopefully we will find someone who is gifted, someone who has strengths that God has given for faithful ministry. But hear this, Westgate's future does not rest on the shoulders of her next pastor. What we need as individuals, as a church, is the same thing as what the people of ancient Israel needed. In uncertainty about the future, uncertainty that could easily break way into fear, we need the reminder to look backward at God's faithfulness. We need the reminder that we have a king who gave everything to call us his own. And it is only in his strength that we have a proven security and the hope of an eternal future. Let's pray together. God, you are so good to us. And we admit this morning that we, we see a fraction 
of the ways in which you show us mercy and protect us on a daily basis. We, we get a glimpse of all that you're doing on our behalf. And so we ask this morning as we reflect on the season of uncertainty that lies ahead of us, that you would guard our hearts. Remind us that you are faithful. Drive us toward seeking a lead pastor whose only goal is to point us to you, to remind us of your faithfulness proven and accomplished for us at the cross. We are your people, and you are our God, and it's by your mercy that we rejoice in that truth. It's in your son's name that we pray.